Latino Stories, Historias Latinas, es un podcast que nace del proyecto de narrativas orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos en Ohio, con entrevistas en español, inglés, and Spanglish. Welcome to Latino Stories. I'm Elena Fowles. My guests today are Vanessa Bustamante and Gabriela Rios. La doctora Vanessa Bustamante was born and raised in San Fernando Valley, California. She's a first-generation bilingual queer Chicana scholar who has a deep-rooted appreciation for community involvement, engagement, and advocacy. La doctora Gabriela Rios is a Chicana rhetorician whose work focuses on rebuilding and reclaiming indigenous Chicanex, Chicana, Chicano rhetorics. Using the colonial and anti-colonial frameworks, her published work has looked at how indigenous peoples resist ongoing colonization and critically examines how indigeneity and indigenous knowledge circulates in social movements and public discourses. Bienvenidas a este episodio y a San Antonio, Gabriela y Vanessa. Muchas gracias. Tell us a little bit about your journey into higher ed, and let's start with you, Gabriela. Ooh. <clears throat> so I am also, so I'm also the first person to to go to co to graduate from college in my family, mm -hmm. and I really loved learning. I do that's part of it, and my family really encouraged, especially my dad. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think a lot of it was like I want to make my dad proud. <laughs> Um, he always wanted to get his education and he always even thought like getting a doctorate is just this amazing thing, you know? Mm -hmm. So, it, you know, it makes him especially very proud for me to have come as far as I have. Um, and I kind of just kept going. Um, so I started, you know, I do, we, I've talked about this in other places before, but um, when I was in like high school, I was in these AP courses, mm -hmm. but I didn't always fit in there. I was very much a chola when I was growing up. And I felt very isolated in those places. Um, but it definitely, I think, also is part of the reason why I'm here today. It, it prepared me in a particular way to keep going, right? Um, mm -hmm. And to, you know, do better and keep getting higher or whatever grades in, 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 uh, in high school and then into college. Mm -hmm. um, so as I kept going, I actually originally was getting my degree in food science and I was thinking about like the the quote-unquote Hispanic community and food issues and diabetes and the big thing that I was focusing on was like how hunger is a created thing mm -hmm. right like it's not that's not real we create that and it doesn't have to be mm -hmm. um so I that was kind of where I started and I had these different majors it took me a long time to get my undergrad um for a lot of reasons I was you know working and I was there with my grandparents who were um you know, much older. They were mm -hmm. my, I was, my mom was born very late. Mm -hmm. So my grand, I had kind of older grandparents and I wanted to be in the same hometown with them and with them, you know, but I also didn't know what I wanted to do specifically. So I had these different majors and I, um, kind of had like a food science thing. And then I had this English where I, was, I felt like I was getting critical thinking skills. And then mm -hmm. I was a communications major in journalism. And so I was like, I want to talk about food politics and all this kind of stuff. And then I, and then I became a McNair scholar when I was looking for support services. And, uh, and I ended up delaying graduation for that because they said, you have to be a junior and you're a little bit ahead. So can you delay so that you can, because I, I wanted to get my PhD. So right. I was like, yes, I will do that. Um, and um, 
as I was trying to graduate, though, that was when I learned, oh, you can't graduate with three majors. You can only have two. Um, you would have to, uh, at that time, I don't know if it's changed, but at that right. time, you'd have to get your two, graduate, re-enroll, finish the third one. And I was like, oh, my God, I cannot afford, I can't <laughs> do that. So the two that were connected were the English and the comms, the mm -hmm. you know journalism. Mm -hmm. And one of my English professors was helping me to understand, well, you know, you could major in this thing called rhetoric and composition mm -hmm. and still do talk about food politics or still do that part of it, right? Um, and so I said, okay. Um, so that's kind of how I started my journey going. I always wanted to get the PhD with, I was in the McNair program. I started off, um, caring a lot about the politics of food, kind of ended up moving away from that when I was doing my master's mm -hmm. and I started to learn about, um, colonization and how it, how writing in particular was part of that and what that means for how people, um, their, their cognitive, right there, they, they are forced to assimilate in some ways because of how we, what we say good writing is and what mm -hmm. good writing looks like and mm -hmm. all of that. Uh, and I got really interested in that. Um, so then I, my that degree was in contrastive rhetoric. So then eventually when I moved in to get my PhD, I went away from my hometown and I didn't really have an understanding that I was in a predominantly Hispanic space until mm -hmm. I left it. Mm -hmm. And I went to a PWI, went to College Station, and it was very traumatic for me, um, just to keep it real. Like, I feel like I'm still recovering from that trauma. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So I, I, it really, really impacted me and helped me to better understand a lot of some of the politics of, of, that I didn't really understand, even within our own community, you know, like, I, like oh, I'm a light-skinned person, you know. Um, came out there and I was like, cause I felt brown all of a sudden. And I was like, I know people feel brown in our communities, right? Like what's, you know, so, uh, it, it, yeah, it was really traumatic experience, but, um, I met really amazing people there that helped me to further my, my interests in colonization and its impact on writing. And so I moved into cultural rhetorics and that's where I started to put a much more focus on indigeneity mm. and indigeneity across Latin America and here with Chicanx indigeneity. Um, and yeah, that's, I guess the that's good. Um, thank you for sharing that because, yeah, we do, um, you know, we go through different phases, I guess, of understanding who we are mm -hmm. um, and how that, it, it's not that we, it changes, but it, it gives, us, gives us a different understanding of who we are when we enter into different spaces, right? And, and spaces that, I mean, you grew up in Texas. Yes. And so very much, you know, around people that look like you, et cetera. Mm -hmm. You know, I grew up in Matamoros, so very different than Ohio, mm -hmm. where I ended up. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, but, um, and so, yes, but what I, what, what I find um, important to highlight is that you were still in Texas, right? Yes. And you ended up at a at a university that did not look like yes. um, like or the rest town. of Texas, yeah. right? A town, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, how about you, Vanessa? Um, so my higher education journey has been very interesting. Um, I think even from being a high school student and going into the college environment, for my family, I knew it was something that I had to do. Um, but I didn't really see myself as a student, like a good student. Mm -hmm. I had even just gotten suspended the, like within that year, me being a senior. And there was just a lot where I just, I was also being told by my high school counselor that college was not for me. And, um, you know, people saying that they had hopes for me, but they were kind of diminishing. And so mm -hmm. I just didn't really see myself as a good student. Um, it really wasn't until I got to Cal State Northridge where I did my undergrad. I was a Chicano Chicana Studies and Communication Studies double major. Uh, 
upon stepping foot on the college environment, I became a machista. So in the summer before I even started school, I was like already signed up to be in Mecha. And it was really in those classes where I saw myself as like a student or a mm-hmm. good student or mm-hmm. a student that could do well, you know? Um, it was the first time that I actually read a book from start to finish, which was the book Broken Spears. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it was really when I found myself reflected in the text, in the reading, in in the people around me and the professors, that I started seeing myself as a person that could do well in this environment. And it was actually in my Chicano Studies 100 course with Dr. Elias Serna, where I learned about the Chicano Educational Pipeline. And um, Chicano Educational Pipeline takes 100 students, and then it shows their trajectory through the different um, aspects of education. And it got to the bottom one, which was the doctorate, and it was like 0.2. And I wasn't good at math, so I was like, that's not a person. That's not even, you know, (laughs) like, and so I was just like, I don't know what this is, but it's not a person. And in that class, he looked at me, and he was like, what are you going to do to change that? And I felt like that was probably the most empowering thing somebody could tell me because they saw that I could change that. Mm -hmm. And so that really changed, I think, my view of being a college student and possibly going beyond the undergraduate experience. Mm -hmm. And um, I actually had applied for law schools because I was like, oh, a doctorate is a jurist doctorate. Like, that's still a doctor, you know? And... I wanted to go to law school because I really liked arguing with people about facts. Um, And so I was like, I'm going to go to law school. And I actually applied to all these law schools and didn't get into any of them. Mm -hmm. And somehow, I think it was because I filled out my FAFSA, I had a state university grant that was granted to me for any of the CSUs in California. And it was two years of a master's program paid for it. And for me, I was like, I don't have money. My family doesn't have money. I need to take this opportunity. And so I literally called the Educational Leadership and Policy Studies Department at CSUN a month before classes were starting, when their cohorts were already set. Um, And I asked if I could just join the next cohort. And lucky for me, I had been a student assistant in that department for the whole year prior, like my whole senior year. I worked three jobs on campus. Mm -hmm. And one of those jobs was in ELPS. And um, I called Dr. De La Torre, and I was like, can I be in your program? And he was like, it's a little late. (laughs) And I was just like, I have this money, and I don't want it to go to waste, and I promise I'll do a good job in the program. Like, I'll give it my all. And he gave me an opportunity, and Mm -hmm. so that's honestly how I ended up in that master's program. I started working at Loyola Law School in downtown uh, because I wanted to get tuition remission when I decided to go get, uh, like, the JD. Right. And um, in that process of working at Loyola Law in downtown LA, I realized that I didn't want to be a lawyer. Like, I wanted to help people every day, but I also wanted to transform education. And so um, my, my, I guess, my navigation through education, I think, has always been a little bit difficult. I think just because starting off, I was an ESL student, so Spanish was my first language, and um 
I did have an accent and that wasn't very accepted almost. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had a lot of problems with writing and math. Um, and so, yeah, like I think never seeing myself as an academic or like a scholar was something I, I think I, I would even say I have struggled with even after getting a doctorate, you know, and um, changing my trajectory from going to law school to then saying, I said I was going to get a doctorate, you know, I did say this when I was like 18, 19 years old. So I was like, well, what am I going to do? And then I decided I was like, you know what, I'm gonna get my doctorate in education, because this is what I know, this is what I do well. And I love helping students every single day, like, this is where I can see that impact, you know, and it just really excited me that I could work with college students every single day and motivate them and support them, but also be that person that I wish I would have seen in the college environment, like this down-to-earth homegirl that, like, is helping you, and you can keep it real with her and, like, not feel like you have to put on a face, whereas walking through academic spaces myself, I always felt like, okay, I have to tone this down or I have to not look this certain way because people are not going to take me seriously, you know? And um, so I just really wanted to be that and to also sit at tables to change policies and transform the way in which we were receiving education because I learned through Chicano Studies, like, you don't have to learn a certain way. And higher education, I think, has been a journey for me because it it has been taught in just a certain way. And trying to transform that, at least in the state of California, has been completely difficult. And I know it's based on the roots of higher education and the way these institutions were created. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, which it's so ironic because I feel like, yes, well, I've had a journey, my journey through higher education hasn't just been as a student, it's been as a employee mm-hmm. also. And so it's like twofold and seeing all the things that I wanted to do as a student and then trans- trying to transform it into being an employee of these places, it um, it's almost like it didn't mix. Mm-hmm. And, you know, which has brought me to this place where I am kind of speaking and consulting in higher education, but I'm outside of the academy now. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like, one, my voice is more valued in this space. Um, and two, I feel like I'm able to make a bigger impact because I'm not holding back. I'm saying exactly mm-hmm. what I need to say. And I think what students need to hear so that they become agents of change and they are helping and pushing these things in a different way. Because if there's anything that I learned as a Chicano studies major and as a machista is that students have the power in these institutions. And something that I learned very quickly as a staff member and even working with faculty is like, you're here to work. Mm-hmm. You're not here to push anyone's you know, buttons in a certain way or you're not here to challenge. And that was very evident to me. So for me, somebody who wants to create change, it's like, then I'm going to help create that change by empowering the next generation in this other way that mm-hmm. I don't think I saw when I was younger, you know? Right. Uh, you mentioned uh, Mechista or Mecha. Mm-hmm. Can you uh, tell us what that is? Yeah. Mecha stands for Movimiento Estudantil Chicanex de Aslan. Okay. Great, thank you. I do appreciate um, how you're speaking about your journey, right? Because sometimes, especially at um, Hispanic-serving institutions where you, we have 
perhaps a higher number of first-generation students, um, some of them uh, from low-income low homes, um, uh, see or, or are having a hard time, right, navigating the, the space of higher education and, um, and maybe see, you know, the journey as one way or, and if they only see it as one way, then they're already thinking that they're failing, right, or that mm-hmm. they don't belong. And, um, I mean, all, all of us, I, I had, you know, I went through, I was um, also an ESL student at the, you know, before I started college, and then I started at a community college and, and all the way through a PhD, right? And I took breaks in between degrees for life, yeah. <laughs> different reasons, right? And so, and I, and I think that having those experiences and, and speaking about them, one normalizes them and one, and it can definitely encourage our students that it, that it doesn't matter, right? Um, we, we, sometimes they think, you know, they have to get that degree in four years or, you know, as soon as possible, which, which is fine, right? And, and I understand, but sometimes we have to step back. Sometimes we have to take a break. Sometimes life's ha- life happens, right? Yeah. And we have to, we have to do that. And I do um, appreciate too, you speaking about the importance of role models, right? Because some, I didn't have, I, I didn't have, I just went, sometimes I think about my, you know, when I was an undergrad, I just went, went, went. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't think about anything. Like I worked and went to school and, um, and it wasn't until my PhD program that I actually got a mentor. And, and you know, that it was a woman. She was not a woman of color, but she still helped me navigate and understand. But it was late through my program, right? And so that also, those experiences that we have sort of renews or gives us this commitment, right, to yeah. our students in different ways. So, so I thank you for sharing that. Um, so you said, Vanessa, you, are, you were an ESL student. So you grew up um, with Spanish as your uh, dominant language or native language. Yeah. Um, and what about you, uh, Gabriela? Um, I grew up in a, it was bi- very much bilingual. So my mm-hmm. father was raised also in Matamoros. Mm-hmm. My mom is from Kingsville and her parents were raised there. But her, her parents, my grandparents, did not speak English on uh-huh. either side. Uh-huh. The Spanish that we speak here is very different from right. the Spanish in Mexico, right? <laughs> but um, so they would go just back and forth mm-hmm. really easily. And then I, so I'd be with my grandparents, it would be only Spanish. And it was, you know, both of my parents, they kind of would, they start a sentence in English or they ended in Spanish, or they right. started in Spanish, they ended in English. That's the kind of the, the way that it was in my house. What about you? Was that, what was that like growing up, you know, in, in between two languages, I guess? Yeah, um, I actually grew up in a multifamily household. So I grew up, um, it's me and my mom, my dad, and my brother, it's, you know, us, but my abuela mm-hmm. and my tia and my cousin um, lived with us also. And so Spanish was actually very important because if not, my abuela wouldn't understand. Mm-hmm. And my tia had just also come from La Ciudad de Mexico. So mm-hmm. we had to speak Spanish at home so that we could all understand right. what was going on. Um, and from what I actually have heard is that I um, didn't want to speak English because I thought it sounded ugly <laughs> as a child. So um, it wasn't that like I didn't know how or I didn't understand. It was just that I thought I guess Spanish was prettier. Like mm-hmm. and so as a kid, like my 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 mom jokes that yeah I don't know why you really like Spanish. Um, 
So at home, it was fine. Um, it wasn't until like I really got to school that it became funny or it became something. Um, I, I will say too, my mom was very big on like us speaking English too and like speaking both. Mm-hmm. Um, especially when I got the accent, like it, it, it definitely was something that my mom really worked hard to make sure I wouldn't have. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was difficult because my dad, um, he his Spanish, his English is very broken. Mm-hmm. So even sometimes inadvertently, I would just say words that my dad would say in the way he would say it. Right. And then, you know, my mom would say, that's wrong. That's not how you say it. You say <laughs> it this way, right? Um, so it was just, to me, it. I liked it because I could communicate with everybody in my family. Mm-hmm. Because I have a cousin who's my exact age, and she was not taught Spanish. So she would always say, hey, what is my grandpa saying? Mm. And I'm like, oh, he's saying this, right? So I loved that I could communicate with everybody in my family. Um, But I did feel this sense of kind of like behind Mm -hmm. or different Mm -hmm. from a very young age. And um, it mostly came from kids at school being mean, (laughs) you know, like, oh, you know, you want to play with bobbles? Mm -hmm. And like they would say stuff like that to me and... And they would think it was it was funny, mm-hmm. and um, to me, I would just kind of laugh along because I'm like, oh yeah, it does sound different, you know. But I think I at a very young age I did realize I was different, mm-hmm. and um, I guess that's how it was for me. But I do think that it was it was great growing up because I could communicate, but also I think it helped me in the future. Like now, I feel like. I can speak both right. and I can, um, and while sometimes I express myself in both, I think Spanglish is a big part of my language. <laughs> yes. um, and my friends like will joke like, damn, fool, you just switch from one language to the other. And I'm like, yeah, I do. Like, it just comes out. Yeah, sometimes you don't realize it. Yeah, but I love it now. Like, I feel like it makes me me. Like, I feel like it makes me, yeah, it makes me different, but, like, it makes me unique, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think I've also done, like, a reconditioning of myself that, like, different always isn't always bad. Mm-hmm. And it just makes me unique. And also, um, you know, it makes me, I think, more connected to my community because I can con- I can conversate and uh, get to know people in both languages and when sometimes there are people that don't speak Spanish and we're doing something in a community space I can help bridge that gap and I love bringing people together so it's also like this ability or way of me being able to bring everyone together even though maybe not everybody understands right right now that's important especially with our you know, Latina, Latino, Latinx community where you might have very, you're very likely to encounter people that are bilingual or Spanish dominant, even, even if they're bilingual, they like to hear, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. you're presenting or uh, telling them about in Spanish. Um, Especially, I I imagine as you both maybe uh, work with parents or have that contact with parents. I mean, I, I know that's my experience. If you, if you work with Latinx students, you're likely to meet the parents, right? Mm-hmm. You're likely to, to do something where the parents uh, come to the university, an activity, or um, some, some, somehow you, you end up meeting them, right? Yeah. So you are both committed to community building and centering your identity as Chicanas, uh, Chicanx, as a source of knowledge and resilience. And I can hear just from your experience, right, even 
you were chingonas before you even knew you were chingonas, right? <laughs> um, how you, and how do you cultivate this sense of identity and orgullo with other women and with other Latinas? Right now, that primarily happens in classroom settings for me. And I feel like also with the Chola Conference. Um, but yeah, like uh, I teach a Chicana, Chicanx rhetorics class. And the Chicanx part is because a lot of the early Chicana feminisms are coming from queer communities, right? Mm -hmm. they're, they're women who also identify as queer, right? Um, and I teach predominantly at PWIs. Like that's been my, ex my majority of my experience. So we have a lot of students who are doing that work, who are, who are struggling, who are feeling sometimes disillusioned, lost. And then they take classes. Like I've had students take that class and they'll say, just because it said ethnic something like they sometimes don't even know what a chicana is right um and so then we start reading about the history we start reading about folks look at what people have done look at how this term came out of that struggle a term that was born out of love mm -hmm. and that was you know created to give you a place to come to when you're feeling exactly how you feel right, right. so we read about that we also then look at what are people doing contemporarily what are people doing now right with this who identify as chicana potentially right or in the mexican-american community um, and slowly but surely they, they start to embrace the term sometimes, like whereas they, they come in and they don't identify that way, they might by the end of it say, you know what, I, I'm a Chicana and that's okay, right? And they bring in all their different experiences. We have first gen experience of, I meaning first gen born here. Right. Um, also maybe they're, 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 uh, immigrants, right. <laughs> or they are second generation, third generation. Right. And we talk through those kind of differences, right. How those different experiences and how we can come together around them. Right. Um, and, and how I feel like Chicana as a term, as a, as a movement, as a history, all, all of it can can encompass all of those things, right? So it's it's really, really rewarding to be able to work with students who are struggling in these spaces and feeling so lost and alone. And then they're like, oh, they, they find that there's this history of people and that their, their history matters. And then where I'm at now, which is, it's really cool because they don't often know about the really strong history of, of Chicanx movement in Boulder specifically, mm -hmm. like not mm -hmm. even just Denver, but Boulder. And they're usually so like, what? <laughs> How did I never know this? How? And it's like, it's on this campus. There are places that you can go to see it and to find yourself. And it also helps them be like, yeah, you belong here. People fought and died, literally, for you to be here and to take up space here as your authentic self. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You don't have to, you know, because that's not the narrative that they get or that they feel oftentimes in, the, in PWIs. Mm -hmm. So I think primarily that's where it's happening for me right now. I, I want to just uh, make a quick comment about that because, um, so you, I do have that experience of working at uh, PWI, and now this is my first year as a at a Hispanic-serving institution, and I do want to say that students, I mean, th their experience is different, but they still don't have... Mm, that's maybe the language to to identify their experiences, right? Yes. So... Um, so sometimes it catches me by surprise because I assume, right, growing up or being in San Antonio, which is, you know, San Antonio in Texas is very different than any other city in Texas. <laughs> um, so there's a lot of, you know, contact with Mexican-American um, uh, heritage and cultural arts. There's so many writers and poets here. Um, and... Um, and just last semester, you know, we were talking about this different, you know, identities and things like that. And, and there's one student who's like, well, I've, done, I've gone through this, this, this. So does that mean I'm a Chicano? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, 
from your, you know, from what you're saying, it sounds like your experience is that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you have, you know, and yeah. so I encourage him to like think about, you know, and then decide for himself. But um, so sometimes even in spaces like this or places like this, students have heard it, have been around it, but haven't owned, owned it, yes. owned it mm-hmm. right? So, so anyway, <laughs> what about you, Vanessa? Yeah. I think I try to occupy different spaces. So yes, formerly when I was working on a college campus, I would just find my my niches, right? Because mm-hmm. I was classified staff, right? So I was in charge of you know orientation programs, stuff like that. But I would purposely be an advisor to a student club, like mm-hmm. the Latina Leadership Network, or uh, serve as a mentor for Puente, mm-hmm. or you know just go to Noche de Familia and, and just engage. Um, but now that I've kind of been out of higher education I try to occupy different spaces in the community and so and I also try to cultivate spaces for community so um, I serve as the vice chair of El Partido Nacional de la Raza Unida and um, in this last year the Congreso we reignited the Chicana Caucus Mm -hmm. uh, to have more of a focus on the mujeres and uh, bringing speakers and empowerment to mujeres in the movimiento so that they can see themselves as leaders of the movimiento and they can see themselves in positions of el partido and in their states. And then, you know, I obviously have homegirl doctora, which is what I also go by, but um, I have the Homita Network and that's a space and place virtually where we have Noche de Palabras every other Tuesday night. And um, it's literally bringing whoever signs up online and we have conversations about healing. We have conversations about navigating education. So we've had undergrads on there asking us questions. We have people navigating career issues where their identity or their students' identities are not being centered and how do they fight against that. Um, There's people that want to get into activism but don't feel like they're able to because they don't know enough. And so it's just a space where we can come together and empower one another. And that's really what I'm about. Like, that's what I love to do is empower. And I do use, obviously, the historical context of being from Los Angeles and being a Chicana from L.A. Um, and, and that whole history, but also, like, leaning and understanding and centering our indigenous identities of the land and the cultivation of land and like our ancestors and how powerful that they are but how also they exist within us you know and so I try to do you know whatever I can to bring people together and I also being in La Razonida I I, we've also come away from using the term Chicanex, Chicano, Chicana as just a form to identify people with a Mexican heritage. And it's more about being from Aslan mm-hmm. and knowing what Aslan is and how, you know, you could be Salvadoreños, Guatemaltecos, um, Hondureños, um, Mexicanos. Live, like, if you're all in L.A., you kind of all have the same experience. Right. And that's the Chicano, Chicana, Chicanex experience. Mm-hmm. And so bringing us together in unity as raza, as people who are trying to move our communities forward, um, is what is, I think, at my most, like, utmost importance mm-hmm. in, in everything that I do and everything that I center. And so I think for me, that's how I try to empower other raza women um, 
to be who they are and to be themselves unapologetically because we're all needed in our uniqueness and we live in a system that's constantly trying to strip us of this identity of who we are and so bringing us back and and grounding us and centering us in who we are because all these things that make us different make us beautiful and we need to all be in our individual selves to come together to cultivate and make sure that folks are seeing themselves represented and if we're changing ourselves then they're never going to see those authentic people that they can be and so that's kind of how I try to unify women and empower them and bring them to their own chingona status so that they can see themselves as that because society definitely tries to mess up, mess with us you know as mujeres I think uh, the most like we're still underpaid we're still you know trying right. to get you know certain rights and so it's just being able to say like we can make a change and part of that is standing together in solidarity and unity and not fighting against each other and moving us forward in this way so that the next generations can see this too and continue cultivating that. Right. And thank you for saying, you know, that Chicana, Chicano, Chicanex can be a unifying term, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, especially in a place like California or LA, right, where yeah. you have so many different groups of uh, people from all over, right? Mm-hmm. Like you mentioned, El Salvador, Honduras, Mexico, and, and so on. Um, and in a sense, they have grown up or they are experiencing very similar um, uh, experiences, right, yeah. within within this space. Um, so, so that term can be um, a term not just to mean Mexican-American, but mm-hmm. to mean that experience, right, mm-hmm. in, 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 in a sense unifying. And another unifying term that you just mentioned is chica, uh, chingona, right, mm-hmm. for, for all women, it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah. Um, so you just facilitated a workshop uh, for us entitled Your Raices, Discovering La Chingona Que Corre En Tu Sangre. So, so tell us about why this, I mean, I, I was there, and so I, I enjoyed, you know, the conversations and really thinking about um, how we, we own the, 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 the term, right, chingona for ourselves. Um, so tell us why that's important to you, to, for, for yourself, but also to, to teach others. Mm. <laughs> so... In, so the reason why chingona is important to me? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess because for me, it does reach deep back into my chola roots. That For, for me personally, it has that mm-hmm. connection. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that, I feel like in a lot of ways, we talk about like inner child healing, Mane and I sometimes, I feel like I'm the inner chola healing. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because that, I, that I, ooh, I think I'm going to cry. Um, you know, I've, at the Chola conference, I talked about this a little bit, but that particular identity, the way that you come to it and the, with the things that I was experiencing in my uh, childhood, um, that was a saving space for me. Great. Mm-hmm. You know, I, and I, I didn't, identity can be a space too, right? You know, it was a way of kind of embracing what I saw around me. Mm-hmm. Finally, there was, it was, for whatever reason at that time, I was able to when I was being told that it was not good, it was not smart, that it was not bad. You know, I have this experience going into these AP classes my first day in high school and the teacher stopping me and being like, 
oh, you think you're in the wrong place. Mm. Hold on. Mm. You know, and being in there and yeah, it did feel like I was in the wrong place. It mm. constantly, you know, and feeling also then separated from my friend groups because most of my friends were not in those classes. Some of them were, right? But most of them, a lot of them were not. And that sort of femininity is the kind of femininity that I the people who raised me were, you know what I mean? And by that, I mean the people I was around, my family mm -hmm. members, the people I looked up to, the, you know, they had that kind of chingona attitude um, that was, is rebellious, is resistant. And maybe that gets into trouble sometimes, you know, like I definitely spent a lot of time in SAC, we call it back in the day, special assignment class. <laughs> um, uh, and seeing kind of like how differently people are treated too in the, in those kind of spaces. And I don't know it. it so, as I continued on in higher ed, though, going into higher ed, that that narrative of like, you're in the wrong place, it's stuck. Mm. And I slowly started to buy into it and kind of be like, oh, yeah, I, I shouldn't claim that anymore because that's this is I'm in this elite space now. And that's not they don't go together, you know, um, and slowly but surely kind of moving away from it. I would always tell people I'm an ex chola. I'm an oh, you know, like that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And when I heard about this chola conference, I was like, Oh shit! I'm sorry. <laughs> and I, you know, it, it be, now I feel like I'm coming back to mm. her and nurturing her more, and kind of like being okay with that part of me that maybe comes across as too stubborn, too resistant, too. You know what I mean? Right. And and it, being able to embrace the beauty that, that comes out of that too, that the, the way that that helps me be resilient, or the way that that helps me, you know, but also vulnerable. Like like the, there's also a lot of vulnerability in there, and the there's, you know, not to stereotype at all cholas or put us in any, you know, but people who come to that identity oftentimes have hard lived experiences. It, yeah. it grows out of that. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And so acknowledge that's part of it. Right. It's acknowledging that coming back to chola for me is also acknowledging that mm -hmm. and being able to work through it and be OK with it and understand that I am who I am because of them. Those mm -hmm. those experiences, mm -hmm. you know, um, so that's what chingona means to me and why to me it's so important to to come back to it, to, to embrace it, to, mm -hmm. to make it, to put it out there for everyone. Because right. like Vanessa said, we are all chingona in some way. Mm -hmm. We're all dealing with a lot of, of stuff, you know, especially within our community that we don't always get to um, name and own and say this is a problem, right? And so I think that's also just part of it is being like, and I'm actually chingona for, ha for being able to, you know, go through that or move through that or work through that. Yeah, I just want to say that also this terms, right, that we are transforming the terms that have been traditionally been negative, right? Mm. Or used to put us down uh, in a way, even the, you know, the word chola, the word chingona mm. or como chingas, right? Um, <laughs> it's related to that. And, um, and even the term like hija de tu madre, right? Mm. Uh, that's another sort of expression that is being flipped, yeah. right? Yeah. We're flipping some of those negative connotations that are associated with certain terms and that I mean I just um, sometimes I told I tell my daughters I have adult daughters now but um, you know I say I told I tell them hija de tu madre ven para acá right <laughs> and, it, and it used to be or I mean I'm sure in some sense it still is but I obviously to me it's it's a it's it's a phrase of empowerment mm -hmm. right <laughs> more than than anything else and my mom heard me say that they're like, oh, que fea, por qué le dices eso, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, mommy, it's not like you think it is, right? It's actually, um, and, and yeah, and so she says, she sees stickers that said chingona on our, you know, like um, iPads or, or, or computers. 
in her generation, that's still like harsh or it's, it has a negative connotation. It's something that we shouldn't identify ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. As chingonas or hija de tu madre or anything like <laughs> that or chola. Mm -hmm. um, yet we are rethinking and transforming that and owning it because like you just mentioned, right? That some of those terms or identities come from a place of hardship that has made us have grit yeah <laughs> and and you can't take that out like you that should never be something that it's negative right it, it's giving you skills to fight mm -hmm. what about you Vanessa yeah so I think for me it's kind of been the opposite where I always identified as a chola and even without having to identify I remember walking into undergrad classes with my profes saying like hey chola or hey hoops like they just had nicknames for me um, so I think it was something that I always just kind of wore. And for me, it was like this identity makes me a badass. Mm -hmm. And so like that's kind of where Chingona came in. And I remember even being an undergrad and doing an event. I'm part of a historically Latina-based sorority, and I'm a, one of the founders for the chapter at CSUN. And I remember we were going to do our Founders Week, and I had said like, oh, we should call it like Chingonas, like something or other. And, like, some of the girls, this was, like, 2010, you know? And some of the girls were, like, I don't know if that's appropriate. And I'm, like, why not? You know, it's badass. Like, who cares, you know? And so I I feel like I started transitioning to Chingona when I started realizing that, well, when I, when I mean, you don't realize, you know, that n not everyone else has a chola identity. And so I also saw resilience and people overcoming obstacles in different ways but not being cholas you know mm -hmm. um maybe they were more like traditional as well like they grew up in very traditional like mexican households and they you know they identify as more paisa you know and they but they were pushing against certain structures and certain things and i'm like well that's chingona too you know mm -hmm. but i guess in like a chola vocabulary I always just thought it was like, like I was firme, you know, like I just like, that was the word that I used before, like a lot growing up, like in high school and like even, you know, in undergrad, like I used firme a lot, but when chingona kind of in a sense started to resurface, I was like, yeah, it's all of these things. Mm -hmm. And it's also more encompassing for people who don't identify with chola or who don't identify in the same exact way. Right. I identify and so it was more of like also like a unitarian type word to use because I think even as 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 mujeres right like um being raza and having these different layers in our identity there's so much that we have overcome and to not and and to acknowledge that I feel like we need to be like out about it like we need to own it and I feel like the term chingona, it just owns it. Like, it's this power behind the word because it is like you're a badass. Mm -hmm. And so it's like being able to, you know, do a presentation right. in a room and say, like, look at yourself in the mirror every day and remind yourself mm -hmm. that you're a badass, that you're a chingona, you know, that chingona runs through your veins. And it's not just you and what you're doing in this moment. It's this whole lineage behind you mm -hmm. that has cultivated you into becoming the chingona that you are. So honor that and continue honoring yourself as you walk through these different steps of your life because 
just know that like because you're chingona like you can do it so it's almost like this self-empowerment piece and I think like that's so important for us to center chingona because we can say it to ourselves because again like society like it's not telling us that like Mm -hmm. it's still continuing to minimize our work to minimize our value to minimize us as mujeres as people with rights you know and we've seen this last year alone just the rights that are continuously being taken away from women Mm -hmm. you know and so it's like remind yourself in that mirror like you are chingona and you can fight against this and it's also that creation of collaboration and unity of where we're all chingonas in this room. Mm-hmm. Imagine what you could do with all of our power, with all of our abilities, with all of our differences and talents mm-hmm. and coming together to transform and change things in different ways. Maybe you're the artist, maybe you're the speaker, maybe you're the writer. We need every single one of you. And when that chingona fire like lights together, mm-hmm. it's almost like this massive explosion that can happen. But we need to harness it and we need to believe it and we need to tell ourselves that. Because we live in a society that's constantly telling us no. Mm-hmm. Tell ourselves and tell each other yeah. that, right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, you know, that's how I sometimes greet my friends. Buenos dias, chingonas. ¿Cómo están? I love it. And, and, I, and I like it, right? And, and, and one of my friends is Puerto Rican, so she doesn't always say that. But she doesn't say, you know, because it's not a word that she uses, but she like likes it, right? Yeah. <laughs> so she, um, so yeah, I think it's a way to, I do like that you say we, yeah, we do have to like own it or say it to ourselves, but also to others. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's one reason where I purposely tell my daughters, right? Chingonas. Yeah. Uh, so that's, yeah, that's great. Uh, Vanessa and Gabriela, where do you hope to take this workshop next? And I'm not just saying like, <laughs> you know, next location or whatever, but what do you hope, how do, what do you envision for this? How, how will it grow or like, I mean, I'm sure you're already changing lives. Uh, so, mm-hmm. we, so we, <laughs> we talked about that. Like, we're not sure. I mean, an, an immediate place could be the Chola Conference. Yeah. Oh, Give yes. that a plug. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. definitely. I think when is the Chola Conference? It's October 13th through the 15th in Yakima Valley, Washington. Okay at Yakima Valley College Um, and yeah I was I was yeah I was thinking I was like oh this would be perfect with our theme Um, we're focusing on um, the indigenous chola la chola chola Mm -hmm. la chola chola yeah (laughs) Um, so I think you know maybe we'll present there I think that would be a good opportunity for this workshop but I think also just in Gabby and I uh, the I feel like the friendship and um almost like hermandad that we've like cultivated like I feel like we just blend really well together and like we could do this you know wherever anybody wants to invite us like Mm -hmm. you know um honestly I think that this workshop it really went so well and um just the feedback we were getting from some of the participants and the impact that I feel like it had on them, like it was just beautiful, like to hear them like come up to us after and talk to us about it. And I'm like, wow, we love to do this at a conference, like, a, you know, and um, I don't know, do this at different schools because our Rasa students are so underserved and they're not seeing themselves represented and they're not really getting that motivation from the institutions themselves. And yeah, while we have HSIs and all these HSI grants popping up, the HSI grants aren't really doing much to support these students in the ways that they need to be supported. And 
I feel like workshops like this are important because, you know, I get DMs after workshops similar to this from students saying like, you left an impact on my life. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like those are things we need to have more of because the academic classroom can only do so much. Mm -hmm. And it's about like that cultivation of community and self and empowerment that this institutions don't really focus on and that healing too, because I do mm -hmm. feel like a workshop like this can be healing. Right. And I, I would love to do this wherever, you know, wherever we're invited um, and wherever people feel like we can make an impact. But I do feel that, you know, I don't think this will be our last workshop. I think we, I already have ideas for other workshops we can do together. Um, but I just do think that, bring it that because we were students that felt marginalized and that were oppressed and that were different I feel like we can connect authentically with student populations currently you know and I think that's what makes things so different is that like we see I think a little bit of ourselves and a lot of the students that we come across mm -hmm. yeah definitely agree and doing more like I think there's definitely healing opportunities we didn't we didn't like intentionally push on that today but I feel like there's room and space for that to grow more mm -hmm. and and I think that would be beautiful beautiful yeah. like taking that everywhere and having a whole bunch of chingonas pop up everywhere yeah. yes, absolutely. Yeah. I think I think this should have been a two-hour workshop for real. Yeah. <laughs> we needed yeah. more time yes absolutely well um doctoras gracias por esta conversación Muchas Igualmente, gracias. muchas gracias. Yeah, thank you for inviting us. A todos, gracias por escucharnos y recuerden seguirnos en Facebook y de compartir este podcast con otros. Hasta la próxima.